of Germany is dead. That's from a short film made in the year 1946, just months after Germany had been defeated in World War II. A few decades before this, when World War I had ended, it was possible for much of the world to ponder, just kind of going back to business as usual. But for World War II, it was entirely different. This war unleashed devastation on an unprecedented scale. Some have called 1945 when it ended year zero because of the reset that was required for much of Europe and Asia. Altogether, about 60 million people died as a result of World War II, and Germany, as the narrator of the film said there, was shattered. Instead of 3% of its population being killed, about 8.5% were dead. And vast swaths of the country were Tohu and Bohu. Numerous cities were reduced to rubble, ashes, and wreckage. And it wasn't just the cities that were destroyed, but also the connections between them. Our last bombing was directed against their communications, against convoys, trains, road, and rail bridges, against good yards, stations, viaducts. We not only smashed up the towns, but smashed up the links between the towns. And at the finish, life in Germany just ran down like a clock. Place and time meant nothing because the links between the people were smashed too. They were just left wandering, searching, looking for food, looking for their homes, looking for each other. The name of the film is A Defeated People. It was made by a British film company and directed by Humphrey Jennings, and they made it right there in Germany. And it's an insightful, really up-close look at the shattered and defeated country. The film's main purpose apparently was to explain to the British and American people what was being done in the reconstruction of Germany and what was needed to be done by both the Allied powers and the Germans themselves. Many in Britain and in the U.S. were furious at the Germans, and rightly so. The Germans, you know, they had started this horrendous war, this most devastating conflict in all of mankind's history. And many British and Americans had lost loved ones in the conflict. And the last thing they felt toward the Germans who had caused all of that pain and devastation was sympathy. But this film was part of an effort to show the populations in the U.S. and the U.K. that the defeated Germans couldn't just be left alone. It was part of efforts to show the Americans and British that their nations wouldn't behave the way victors had at the end of wars for most of human history, which was mainly just to pillage and plunder and kind of salt the fields. The film starts off devoting quite a lot of time to portraying just how devastated Germany was and to showing how desperate its people were. There are 70 million people in Germany, and about 30 million of them are looking for someone or are lost and lie looking without seeing, like the eyes of a dead rabbit. It emphasizes how disillusioned the people were, how dumbfounded they were by the horrors they had just been through, and by knowing that it was them, their nation, that had instigated it. They are still stunned by what hit them, stunned by the war they started. 
And the film makes a compelling case that as the rebuilding began, the U.S. and the U.K. had an obligation to guide the Germans away from their natural societal tendencies. But in the search for food and the urge to get home, the life force is beginning to stir again. Today, our powers of destruction are terrifying, but the will to live is still stronger. That's why we can't wash our hands of the Germans, because we can't afford to let that new life flow in any direction it wants. We can't afford to let that life flow in any direction at once. On the Sun Also Rises this week here on KPCG-FM, we'll take a look at the reconstruction of Germany after World War II. And also we'll look a bit at the reconstruction of Japan as well. And we'll consider some lessons from those mammoth projects that remain as relevant as ever today, and especially at this time of year as we look forward to a time very near when the entire world will need to be rebuilt and re-educated. So after the war, to prevent German life from flowing in any direction it wanted, as the narrator, William Hartnell, put it, Britain and the U.S. and the other Allied powers put huge amounts of resources and time into the project. It's estimated that 70% of all German housing was destroyed during the war. So a great deal of the reconstruction was literal rebuilding. It was material, physical cleaning and building. The UK was not in much of a position to give money toward those rebuilding efforts because Britain itself had been stripped of so much during the war and had seen so much of its own territory and cities um, destroyed in many ways. But the U.S., though, gave the modern equivalent of $150 billion to the European nations, including more than $15 billion that went to Germany. This was part of the Marshall Plan to rebuild Germany and the rest of Europe. And it's hard to convey just how momentous the Marshall Plan was, because America sent boatloads of money, literal boatloads of money, to the Europeans. By mid-1948, the U.S. had around 150 ships crossing the ocean to and from Europe at any given time, bringing tools, meat, shoes, coal, grain, and cash, and much more to the Germans and to other European countries. The Marshall Plan amounted to a staggering 5% of America's GDP. And this film really shows why so much was needed for the rebuilding efforts, because uh, resources were just so scarce. But the one thing on which all reconstruction depends is coal. Without coal, there can be no power and no transport. In Essen, our coal control has taken over the Krupp family mansion as its headquarters. And from here, we organize the output and distribution from the whole Ruhr coal fields. Today, the great problem is moving the coal from the pithead to the liberated countries, to the German power plants and to the Allied military dumps. For the Germans themselves, there is no coal. They must go out in the woods and parks to cut wood, to strip the bark off the trees, 
to collect brushwood and carry it home in handcarts and prams. So the Germans were not given any coal because there just wasn't enough of it available. And the same was true for food, so they were given limited rations. The Germans are getting 1,000 to 1,200 calories a day, according to type of work, about half our rations. But we have a survey team in the field, staffed by the Red Cross and the RAMC, checking the effect of these rations on the population. Tests are made of blood content, of blood pressure, of height and weight, and reports sent to the control commission for them to judge whether the food is just sufficient to keep Germany at work. So there was a real scarcity of resources. And the film also discusses just how complex and multi-pronged much of this rebuilding project inside of Germany was. We say the great problem. But in Germany today, for military government officers, there is no such thing as a single problem. For example, the liberated countries won't get this coal unless there is transport to carry it. The transport cannot move any distance unless the tracks and the bridges have been repaired. They can't be repaired without steel, and the steel cannot be made without coal. As mentioned a moment ago, the British were not in a position to give much money to the reconstruction, but they did devote great amounts of manpower to this cause. Even though they'd lost so many of their best men during the war the British still went and assigned huge numbers of these men to take part in Germany's reconstruction. And this documentary acknowledged what a steep sacrifice this was for the women left behind. But it explains that it was absolutely necessary. Our military government, that is, your husbands and sons, have to prod the Germans into putting their house in order. Why? We cannot live next to a disease-ridden neighbor. And uh, we must prevent not only starvation and epidemics, but also diseases of the mind, new brands of fascism from springing up. What is more, we have to persuade the Germans to do this themselves. So this is where the film starts to go beyond just the physical rebuilding. And it gets into what I think is the most fascinating and in many ways the most inspiring part of this project, which was the re-education of Germany. But this mass of humanity has to be sorted out into something like order. Not only their bodies, but also their minds. What about the ideas in their heads? But the greatest headache is education. You will never get Nazi ideas out of the heads of some of the adults, particularly those living away from the devastated areas. What about the children? What about the children, it asks there. This question was really at the heart of the whole project. The entire reconstruction was designed so that the next generations could grow up in a stable country that was not bent on domination and war and genocide the way many of their parents had been. And to accomplish that, they needed teachers. The teachers must be found and themselves taught to teach the children that there are other things in life beyond Nazism and war. But again, the complexity of problems. The schools are in ruins, the teachers too few, the children too many. And as the months go by, the children are growing up 
getting more like their fathers. That was the danger that the British and other Allied powers were up against. They knew that the German people had started World War II, and also World War I and so many other wars over the generations. They knew that just rebuilding the country would just set it up to start another war in who knows how long, maybe a few decades. So they knew that they had to be re-educated to make them think differently than the previous generations had thought. They have to be demobilized and got back to work. But let one man or woman who still believes in the Nazi regime or the destiny of the German people to rule the world take office and you have the beginnings of another war. What is more, we have to persuade the Germans to do this themselves. We just cannot afford to leave them to stew in their own juice. So there is some powerful insight on display here. The British understood that education was the key to changing this country. And they knew that they would have to convince the Germans to do it themselves. It had to be by and for the people if the peace was really going to stick. So the Allies set out to re-educate the people and to reform Germany and to rebuild the country and reintegrate it into the Western community. And the story for Imperial Japan is quite similar to that of Nazi Germany in many ways. Japan, of course, was allied with Germany during World War II. The Japanese also viewed themselves as racially superior to the rest of the world, and they you know, they wanted to dominate and rule their entire continent with eyes eventually on the whole world. By the end of World War II, Japan had been fighting for 14 years. Almost 3 million of their people were dead, with many more injured or gravely ill, starving in many cases. Most of the population was in bad shape and the nation was in ruins. But even then, Soldiers and civilians alike generally would not surrender. They had a perverse military fanaticism that had taken deep root in their society, and nothing short of two atomic bombs was really able to bring a a stop to that. But like Germany, Japan was defeated by the U.S. and the other Allied powers, and it was rebuilt and in many ways re-educated and reintegrated into the international community. If the U.S. hadn't been so concerned by Soviet expansion after the war, um, then America might have focused more on harshly punitive measures with both Germany and Japan. But instead, America took the approach of reform and re-education, and it reintegrated them into the international system quickly so that Germany and Japan would be allies of America in the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And in the case of Japan, America enshrined pacifism into their constitution. And in the early years, just after the war, the U.S. led the Japanese emperor to deliver his famous Declaration of Humanity speech to the nation. That was a radio address Uh, to Japan, in which Emperor Hirohito renounced many of the nationalistic and, you know, just really racist ideas that had been the fuel of the Japanese war machine. And in that address, he told the Japanese people that they were not a superior race and that they were surrendering. 
So that was part of the re-education of the people of Japan. And under U.S. General Douglas MacArthur, America also introduced new school curricula all across Japan. The purpose was to turn the Japanese into a peaceful and democratic people. And these campaigns by the U.S. and Britain and the other allied powers, these campaigns of rebuilding and re-educating Germany and Japan, they had some undeniable success. Germany and Japan became towering economic powerhouses. And for the last 75 years, both have refrained from warring against any other major nation, at least. There have, of course, been conflicts, but nothing even approaching the scale of violence and widespread war and devastation that has really been the norm for centuries of German and Japanese history. And I think this is a fascinating topic to consider, especially at this time of year, because if you've been listening to KPCGFM for the last week or so, you know that the biblically commanded fall holy day season is underway, and the Feast of Tabernacles is just around the corner. The Feast of Tabernacles is the annual festival that pictures the future time after Jesus Christ will have returned to earth, and he will usher in a 1,000-year era of peace and unprecedented prosperity. But just before his return, the scriptures make plain that there will be war. Matthew 24 records Jesus Christ talking about this war that will erupt just before he returns. And in verses 21 and 22, he describes it in these terms. There will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. That's the way the New Living Translation renders it. And that is a chilling picture of extreme devastation, not just of one or two nations or even one or two continents, but the whole world. This will be a global war so devastating that it could kill every single person. So that means this war will be fought with nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. And if we look around the world today, we see the stage being set for that third world war. The drums of war are pounding in many nations already. So that's a chilling reality that we have to accept. But as we see that conflict approach, there is cause for great hope. In Matthew 24, just after Christ says that that global war at the end of this age will be so devastating that it could kill all human life, he then adds a vital detail. In verse 22, he says, but it will be shortened. World War III will be cut short before mankind fires his last weapons to totally annihilate human life. Jesus Christ will interrupt the conflict. And then the Bible makes clear that a time of global rebuilding and re-education on a scale far beyond what took place in Germany and Japan will begin. And it will be done by God's power and his government and with his people assisting him in that massive project. The people who survive this war will be stunned and traumatized, much like the film clip that we played earlier described the surviving Germans 
as having been after World War II, stunned by what hit them, stunned by the war they started. But Christ will set to work comforting them and healing them and re-educating them as he rebuilds the devastated planet. The world-famous writer and educator Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong devoted much of his life to studying what the Bible says about that global restoration and re-education project, the, the project that Christ and his people will undertake. And here's a clip from Mr. Armstrong speaking during the Feast of Tabernacles back in September of 1980. So now I want you to notice about the second coming of Christ. He is that unseen hand that is coming from some place. He is the one who's going to come and do it and take over the government and with the almighty power of the Creator God, He's going to take over the rulership of all the nations on this earth. And there will be one world government and no more world war. And under that government we'll have a new educational system. A new educational system, Mr. Armstrong said. In his booklet called The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, Mr. Armstrong went into more detail about that new system of education and also just about the, uh, the rebuilding of that broken world. One section says, quote, One of the great problems facing the returned glorified Christ will be that of re-educating the supposedly educated Modern education has been based on a false, erroneous, untrue foundation. But in God's millennial civilization, the basis of all knowledge dissemination will be revelation. Light will replace darkness. Truth will replace error. Understanding will replace crass materialism. True knowledge will replace intellectual ignorance. And then, let me see, continuing on here, Mr. Armstrong writes... Complete utopia cannot be ushered in all at once. Multiple millions, those who survive this terrible war, will still hold to the attitude of rebellion, of vanity, lust, and greed. But with Christ's coming shall begin the process of re-education, of opening deceived minds, of undeceiving minds. Yes, the educating and re-educating of the world will be one of the most important tasks the kingdom of God will face after Christ returns to rule. Today, people follow the false and deceptive values. Their entire thinking will require a reorientation, a change of direction. So that sounds really analogous to what the documentary film said about the post-war Germans. You know, it said the greatest challenge for the Allied powers was education, removing those toxic Nazi ideas from their thinking. And of course, with the Japanese, it was about removing the, the toxic nationalistic and state Shinto and imperial ideas from their thinking. The Allied powers understood that they couldn't let those ideas remain. They couldn't let life flow in any direction it wants. That's how the documentarians phrased it. And Mr. Armstrong here is explaining that the same thing will happen on a global scale with the millions who survived that third world war, which also will have been of their own making. But the difference between this future re-education is that it will have permanent success. It won't just bring about a few decades 
of imperfect and very fragile and temporary superficial peace, the way the Allied powers did with Germany and Japan. No, this future re-education will be different. This re-education led by Christ will be done perfectly, and its results will be perfect and utterly life-changing for those generations of people. There's one scripture about this future world, apparently several years into the uh, the time of restoration and healing and re-education, and it mentions an ancient name for the modern peoples of Germany. The name listed here is Assyria, and it, it says that they will be peaceful, truly peaceful. This is Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. It says, In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. End quote. So Germany there and also Egypt are shown to be in loving, serving cooperation with some of the very peoples that they had warred against so many times in the past, Israel. That's, that's extraordinary progress, and it's a beautiful picture of the future of Germany. And as the people are being re-educated, the world that was raised to rubble and ash by nuclear war will be rebuilt Ezekiel 36 quotes what our Creator will say to some of the nations of the world at that time. It says, quote, I will turn to you. I will multiply your people, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities will be populated and the ruins rebuilt. I will increase the number of people and animals on you. They will increase and be fruitful. I will cause you to be inhabited as in ancient times and will do more good for you than at the beginning of your history. Then you will know that I am the Eternal. That's the New English translation of verses 9 through 11 of Ezekiel 36. And it's clear there that it's saying the wastes will be rebuilt. The devastation will be cleaned up. All the, you know, the nuclear fallout will be contained and neutralized. The cities and the nations will be rebuilt, and not just as they were under the reign of men, but vastly more beautiful and clean, and just radiating peace and harmony, and filled with radiant people, rock-solid families, and true abundant life under God's law and government. In the present world, as we see the nations rapidly arming for another world war, it's difficult to imagine such a peaceful and beautiful future. It's hard to envision it, but the Bible makes clear that the dawning of that age of lasting peace and of re-education that will remove war from our thinking is very near. We're coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises here on KPCG-FM. Thank you for tuning in today, and you can email your comments and questions to tsar at kpcg.fm, or you can message us on Twitter. The handle there is at tsar underscore radio show. 
And you can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and also Spotify. If you don't have a copy of Mr. Armstrong's very inspiring booklet, The Wonderful World Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, please find this episode on SoundCloud. And there's a link in the show notes there where you can order your free copy. Or you could also go to thetrumpet.com and just click on the tab that says Literature, and we'll be happy to send you a free copy from there. Well, thank you again for listening, and we'll leave you today with these hope-filled words that Mr. Armstrong ended his booklet with. No one will be deceived. All will know the truth. Humans will become teachable. People will start living God's way, the way of outgoing concern for others, the way of the true values the way of peace, of happiness, of well-being, of joy. Crime, sickness, disease, pain, and suffering, gone. Poverty, ignorance, banished. Smiles on people's faces, faces that radiate. Wild animals, tame. Air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution, gone. Crystal pure water to drink, clean, crisp, pure air to breathe. Rich black soil, where deserts, mountains, and seas formerly were producing full-flavored foods and fantastic beauty in flowers, shrubs, and trees. A world filled with happy, radiating humans, guided, helped, protected, and ruled by former mortals made immortal, and all the humans realizing that they too may inherit everlasting life in supreme happiness and thrilling joy. What a fabulous picture.